January the 9th, 2022. The Clown Show continues. We got a bunch of stuff to talk about today. I'll admit right out of the gate, I'm doing a little bit of a bait and switch to get you in the right mindset going into a new year with positivity. I'm going to start out with negativity because I know when I do a show, and here comes the people piling in now, right? When I do a show like this, I get more people to show up. And if I can give you the, I guess like like when I, in politics we call it red meat in the beginning, then maybe you'll stay for the wholesome stuff, the motivating stuff, the positive stuff in the second half. So what are we talking about today? I'm going to talk about Brandon, a.k.a. Joe Biden, a.k.a. the president, a.k.a. the dementia patient in the White House uh, he finally went to the border after two years. Now, I don't get deep into politics, but I find something about his so-called trip to the border very amusing. And it makes me think of something that I used to do when I was like 12 years old and they told me to clean my room. We'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about the concessions given to McCarthy, all of the pearl clutching that went on last week uh, with Matt Gates and the other Republican holdouts that were terrorists to our democracy and everything else because they actually wanted some concessions, but we'll talk about how almost the entire thing is absolute nonsense in Kabuki theater at best. It just is the way that it is. I'm sorry. I never like being right about this stuff when I talk about politics. I just, I tend to try to keep everybody's mind in the right place. I ran a poll last week, an actual democracy that where your vote really did count if you voted. How much trust do you place in government? I said 0%. Up to 25%, 50-ish more or less, or 100% more or less. And I actually included, if it's 100%, you have to state in the poll that you are an idiot. It says, I'm an idiot 100%. And uh, the winner, by and large, was zero. But I actually want to talk about something else. I want to talk about the people that said, well, I would say zero, but, or if you say zero, you're not thinking. And the difference between believing somebody and trusting somebody. Because this is an important thing to understand in the world of stupidity that we are headed into. We're going to talk about real estate a little bit more again and the shitstorm that's about to be. And the reason people are giving for not buying a home right now. Oh, my friends, it's not a good sign. It's not a good sign at all. And a lot of people will go, well, that makes sense. It makes sense. Except what they're waiting for ain't going to happen, not anytime soon. And it shows you that we are on the brink of everybody actually admitting that this is a problem. And as soon as the real pain starts and people start realizing I can't pay for this place anymore, then it's going to be kind of like pulling the keystone out of an arch. And that's what's coming there. We'll talk about that. And then we're going to talk about moving into some more positive things. Here's what I got for you today. I got a listener named Chris who's been doing carnivore since I challenged him almost 90 days ago. And his progress, I've talked about him before. But then I'm going to tell you um, – Five of my personal tips for carnivore or ketovore, where we're really strict with keto to the point we don't have to worry about tracking carbs or anything because you ain't going to go over. Uh, you're not going to have to worry about it by making the right choices and how to do that in a very easy way and keep a lot of variety in your life. Uh, I'm going to also talk about uh, the food industry. I want to tell you why the food industry uses sugar. It's a very important thing to know because even if you're staying off real sugar, it's a way that you can sabotage yourself 
or when you let yourself have the occasional thing, it's going to be why you end up then wrecking your whole day, even though you were only going to have this little bit, this one thing. And it's a very nefarious thing, but it's also a very logical thing. Why the, why the food industry puts sugar in everything. And I'm going to star that one from Steve right there that's on the screen right now. We'll come back to that because it's a very astute observation, and it's something that I do want to talk about. Uh, but if you want to ask me questions and you're in the live stream of the video, all caps. Now, if you're making a comment two days later after the live's over and you put it in all caps, it really doesn't stand out any different to me. This is just for you guys that are in the live stream here. Then we're going to talk about five things I think everybody should grow. Just a real quick little bonus thing. Like, I can't do a garden jack. I need to do, like, maybe a small indoor hydro or aquaponics system, maybe a few pots and things like that. Like, I'll give you the stuff that if you grow this, it'll elevate your cooking. I am going to talk about how you can become an expert, a multi-subject expert, in just 10 minutes a day and, and, and start a habit that should last you your entire lifetime. Right up until you're ready to get in the box. You should be doing this forever once you know how to do this. And we're going to ask you a simple question at the end. What the hell is 2023 going to be for you? And we're going to drive a little lesson home about what we always call the dash. Now, with that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day before we get started. First of all, RidgeWallet.com. RidgeWallet is an excellent company. I carry a Ridge Wallet of my own. Gee, look, there it is right there. I've been carrying this since Ridge sent it to me five years ago. Uh, by the way, they're guaranteed for life. I don't know if you know that about Ridge Wallets, but they're guaranteed for life. Amazing piece of equipment. But I got my eyes on this burnt Damascus uh, titanium guy right here, and I'm thinking about replacing this one just because that one looks so cool. It's on the screen if you're seeing it. But Ridge has turned into not just a great place to buy a minimalist wallet, but a full-on EDC company, all kinds of really cool stuff. You want to check them out. And if you like this kind of thing, it's probably the case that the member support brigade pays for itself because if you are an MSB member, make sure if you're getting any of this cool stuff here at RidgeWallet.com uh, that you are absolutely using your MSB discount, 10% off everything at Ridge.com where you can get Ridge Wallet and all their cool stuff. Next up today, uh, ButcherBox. ButcherBox is, is my go-to source for great meat brought right to my door. I'll tell you the honest truth is most of what I get is beef, some bacon, because I'm on the bacon for life thing, uh, chicken, I'm on the wings for life thing, but mostly on my discretionary spending on ButcherBox, uh, I get almost all beef from them uh, because it's fantastic. They also have excellent seafood, and don't take that to mean like the chicken's not good or the regular pork chops aren't good or anything. Uh, it's all great stuff, straight ship to your door. Awesome stuff. They have a recurring add-on program where you can have certain things that you add on to your box. You can set the size of your box. You can pause it any time. So if you're a customer, you're like, I don't want to let it go, but I don't need stuff this month, or I want to take a you just take a break. And you can set it up initially to have your stuff shipped to you monthly uh, or every other month. So it is very, very flexible. And I just love Butcher Box coming to my front door. Eric, who I haven't seen in a live stream in a while, Eric Meyer says, I love my Butcher Box subscription. I agree, Eric. Uh, I've said this before, but maybe some of you haven't heard it yet. Butcher Box is the only uh, sponsor I have that's never paid me money. They don't pay me money. They pay me with meat. I have a uh, box, uh, an allowance for my box of meat every month, and then I add on to that. That's what I meant by discretionary spending uh, on my end. So I, I, I take payment in product from them. Uh, I'd love to do that with everybody, but most of my sponsors don't have kind of a recurring 
Uh, absolutely, you will use it up monthly type thing that we can work that out with. Uh, though Start9 did give me a uh, one of their uh, top-end servers in return for a few months of their membership, or not their membership, their sponsorship. So I do that where I can. Barter is better when it works. Remember, we use money because in many instances, one side doesn't have what the other side wants. Anyway, I will never turn down meat. That's my point. I'm rambling. Sorry about that. Let's start digging into this today. Um, I really, and I mean really, wasn't surprised, but I did eye roll myself hard enough that I thought I was going to either pass out and go into another dimension. And I expected it to happen, but I wasn't really thinking about it. So I bought some, this has nothing to do with the subject of Brandon and the border visit, just why I was out on a Sunday afternoon. I was uh, getting my car washed at the car wash because I didn't want to do it myself because it's covered in all this pollen and crap and dust that's been around uh, this time of year. And because I'm putting louvers on the back window of my Challenger. So I need a, a good straight up wash that would get me a nice start so everything sticks where it needs to stick. And I'm listening to the radio, and what came on the radio is that they went out and they cleaned up the whole every place that, that Biden was going to go. So we've had these uh, immigrants living on the streets homeless style, like California homeless style, for months now. We have thousands of them coming across the border. Now, please understand, this has nothing to do with your position or my position on the border, Right. It's it's just this is what it is. And it's been this way. And this is the problem, whether you think we should the solution is seal the border or do something about the inflow of, of, of illegal immigrants. And they are illegal. I'm sorry. I won't censor that word to make people's feelings not hurt. Whether I agree with the law or not doesn't matter. There's a law that says you don't just come here. And all of this shit about their asylum seekers. This is not, asylum isn't just I don't like where I live, so I want to live in your country. That's not what asylum is. And so we have this problem. So Biden's going to go after two years of being president to the border to address the issue and see the problem for himself. So what did they do? They went out and they they sterilized. They they like, oh, you can't stay here. You got to move. Right. So some guy's been having these people sleeping out in front of his business for like two months. His customers can't get to his business, et cetera. And now they're all gone because the president's going to be there for like five minutes. And it was like five minutes because Biden was in the area for a, a whopping total of four hours. It was basically a stopover. I've had layovers in Newark Airport, which sucked, that were longer than four hours, trust me. And so while he's there for four hours, he visited three places. Now, you know how Secret Service works and you know skating out the area before and after and all the shit that goes on in between, four-hour period, three locations, way less than an hour apiece. He's at these places for his photo ops and shit. There's nobody there to see. Now, what... Did, did you remember what I said in the beginning of this? Doesn't that remind you? We all did it, right? You were 12, 13 years old or whatever. Your room was a pigsty. And your mom said, you better go clean your room. And what'd you do? You might have cleaned up a little bit, but overall, you shoved everything under your bed and into your closet. And you made the bed with the blanket down and you hid the problem. And then you hoped that they didn't come in uh, and, and and check. Right. Well, in this case, they knew nobody was going to check. They used a 14 year old's trick here. Let's get rid of everything because you can't have the president of the United States who's ignored this problem that he helped create. I'm not going to say he created the problem because the problem long predates his presidency. It predates when he was uh, uh, 
a vice president, right? He definitely made it worse. He certainly added on to it with his policies, but that is what it is. But we can't have him sullied by the, the refuse. They have to go. Now, this is what is always done with presidential visits. Way back when I was a young dumbass and thought it made sense to join the United States Army, and I served in the Army in the early 90s and I was in Panama, George Bush Sr. was running for re-election and decided for some reason that it made sense for his campaign to go to Panama and I guess campaign for the military vote. Let me tell you something about most of the military down there. We didn't give a damn who was president. We didn't care. Most of the guys in the military, you think it's a big hunk of the vote? Most of the guys in the military are between 18 and 24. And they're not at a point where they're th- you, they really should be. If they believed enough to join, then they should believe the system that is what they joined into. But they don't. It's, it's just not where your head is at that age. So he comes down there. He does this 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 talk. And there was scuttlebutt about it in advance. Saying, did he? To be fair to, to, to Bush, he said he doesn't want a dog and pony show. He doesn't want everybody making everything looking different than it normally is. We scrubbed with freaking, I mean, brooms and like soap and water and hoses the, the place where all the helicopters landed. We had a shit house, aka a latrine, that had been broken for. I had, I had, you know, it was broke before I came to the country. People that were there before me said this thing's been broken as long as anybody remembers. They wouldn't fix it. They realized that Bush has to walk past it, might have to drop a deuce, so they fixed it. That was the best thing to come out of it. So there's always like the polish up, shine up bullshit when a president comes. But in this case, there's no, there's no valid reason for it. There's no valid reason for it. If you're going to say you're going to go look at a problem and have the problem moved out of you intentionally before you get there. It's just another example of why I don't trust anything that our government does or says, even if it happens to be true. But that's a later segment. So let's let's move on from there. The other big political theory theater of the week was the whole, oh, my God, we haven't had this happen for over 100 years They didn't rubber stamp the new Speaker of the House. Now, I don't give two shits now. I didn't give two shits then. I do not care. It doesn't matter. Who gives a rip? To me, if they, I, the best outcome could have been four months of this happening that was happening last week. Four months, the House can't even take seat. You know why? Then they can't do anything. Because now they can get on to doing the business of the American people. <laughs> they can get on to doing the American people from behind with no lube. That's what they do all the time. It doesn't matter what party's in power. And, and don't give me the rhino thing or anything like that. The, the exception, the, the, the rule should no longer be seen as the exception. This is just Congress people. It doesn't matter what party they are. They're all scum. None of them mean what they say. Even the ones that I hate a little bit less. Right. And some of these people stood up. I hate them less. But if I hate you less, I still hate you. And so everybody's talking about these concessions like they matter. Let's talk about a few of the concessions, big concessions that Kevin McCarthy uh, gave up to his own party so that he could win out enough of them to become speaker with a thin majority as our democracy was at the precipice of oblivion for a week because people dared to have any principles at all. That's that was the reporting. If you got through, cut through the bullshit. So here's this is Jeremy says, whenever government is fighting itself and the American people win temporary peace, at least exactly right. 
Anyway, one of the the uh, the big concessions, and this was made very quickly because of how irrelevant it is, and that was that you only need one person to make a motion to relieve the speaker from duty and remove him from office because of a lack of confidence. This is dumb. You still need enough of the House to vote for it to make it happen. The old rule was you needed five people to make that motion. If you can't get five people to make that motion, one person making it doesn't matter. All it becomes is a disruptive thing. So anytime somebody's ass is in a knot and they're pissed off at McCarthy, they can do that. Maybe they have a plan for it. Maybe they're more organized than I think, just so they can say, like, you know, in the last term, Speaker McCarthy had 187,000 motions to be dismissed. Maybe it's another stall. I don't know, but it is kind of pointless. It doesn't matter. You still need enough folks to vote to pull his ass out, and it ain't going to happen. You, you got to really, the 20 holdouts were a very, very small minority of the total of the GOP side of the clown circus, right? Uh, so it's meaningless, absolutely. The church committee, they're going to have a church committee. What the hell's a church committee? It's actually probably, if, you, if you're not old or you didn't hear anybody tell you about it recently, it probably isn't what you think it is. You think of a church committee you think of like you go to your church and they have a group that meets together to talk about the picnic in the summer or something like that. No, it's 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 kind of named or is named after a senator from the 70s. I believe 1975, if memory serves me correctly, named Frank Church. And it had to do with oversight at that time of the CIA. And a lot of the things the CIA that were doing outside of their charter, clearly illegal. It's reasons we know it's, it's this very reason that we know about things like the heart attack gun. If you don't know. It's kind of going to make the point I'm about to make for me. But we know from hearings on the Senate floor, this committee chaired by Frank Church, that the, the, the CIA actually had in their possession, which means they still do probably better, a heart attack gun. In other words, you can shoot somebody with a little dart and, and then and they would have a heart attack and die and look like it was uh, it was natural cause death. That's just one of many things we know because of the church committee. But do you, but do you know what? See, Jesse says the FBI must be dissolved immediately. Must be. Well, what's your plan there, Jesse? Because it ain't happening. You see, this this is language is important. Should be. Totally agree with you. Must be. Nope. Must not be because it's not going to happen. And that was the point I was getting to right there, which is why I picked on Jesse a little bit. So we found out all these horrible things about the CIA. And eventually kind of everybody, right, came to the conclusion that this is all mostly true. CIA still here. CIA is doing that, all of that and more. No reforms were taken whatsoever. And the church committee blew away like a fart in the wind and nobody cared. So that's what's going to happen to this. This is all supposed to look into the FBI. Jordan's got the, 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 the justice committee, uh, or, or what have you, uh, oversight, judicial oversight. It, it isn't going to matter. So you have two committees basically doing the same thing, but one late laser focused on this stuff. It won't matter. It won't matter. It's never going to matter. It's not going to happen. It is important you realize that. Um, the first bill. So McCarthy, after he won enough people over and Matt Gates went, you know what? I know you're a POS. I know you are. I know we all are, but you're like the, you're like the end of the turd with the piece of cord in it. And I can't even hold my nose and vote for you. But what I can do is vote present so that you need less to, to, to become speaker. So. Gates holds his nose and votes president. They get enough votes. McCarthy's a speaker, and he comes out and gives us victory speech. and says, 
The very first bill in front of this Congress will be a bill to repeal the funding for the 87,000 IRS agents that Joe Biden put through when I was minority leader and I voted for it. Okay. He didn't say that part, but you know, he kind of should have. And, uh, this is virtue signaling. So let's say they move very quickly on this. Cause if I'm a Democrat, I'm not even resisting it. I, I got other shit I'm trying to get done. I need to play grab ass with, with, with my, my, uh, Republican partner that will work with me. And, and with such a small minority, we only have a little, a few defectors on either side. We can do anything. So this is not worth fighting. So I'm going to let it happen. They're going to throw it to the Senate where it dies. The Democrats control the Senate. The Democrats have incredible discipline in, in keeping people from crossing a line. Cinema and mansion aside, you're not going to get the two of them, I don't think, to cross the line. But if they did, where once the bill passes both chambers, where does it go? To Biden's desk to die. Giving him a political victory, by the way. Because he can veto it and talk about how important it is. He's holding the rich accountable. So it's all bullshit. It's a trap. You either do it and it doesn't matter or you do it and it hurts you. Or you don't do it and then you look like a lying pack of crap. Right? Um, and, and I will tell you that this would have been probably the one place that I would have agreed with probably what McCarthy would have said halfway back door. Meaning he knew it would go public. But he was being as honest as he could about a reason to oppose some of this stuff that it's meaningless. We're going to take time to do something that's not going to matter. The strategic component of this, if you believe in any of the Kabuki theater, would be then the Republicans have these things that they've done that they're being obstructed by Biden and the Democrats on. And they've made a they've clearly demonstrated they're willing to actually keep their promise so they have something to run on in 2024. Does that sound like Obamacare? Yes, I think it does. Once again, you're being rug pulled and screwed. Uh, then no more omnibus bills. I will bet you, whatever you want to bet me, there will be an omnibus bill in 2023 at the end of the year, like there always is, and it will pass. It will pass. They may allow some amendments. That was some things that was, was added in. They may let them have the bill for 72 instead of 48 hours, but nothing changes. It doesn't matter. People don't care. This is the big lesson in all this, like these oversight committees, these church committees and all. You think, many of you do, not all of you, many of you have, have woken up to reality. You think that these committees are going to convene. They're going to bring people from the FBI in. They're going to be built, bring people in from NIH. Maybe they subpoena Fauci. Maybe they subpoena Biden, uh, uh, what's his name, Hunter, uh, baby Biden to come in and talk about his laptop, his deals in Ukraine. And maybe some of the people even show up because people tend to not show up. We'll put them in jail for contempt. That only happens to you if you're a Republican. Don't you understand that? Right. So in the end, a lot of the stuff won't happen. Right. Like they'll subpoena it and it won't get there or they'll subpoena it. like Jordan. Jim Jordan asked for a ton of information from the FBI. Well, now he'll have official subpoena power because he'll head the committee and the committee will be sanctioned by the speaker because the speaker made a concession. And you know what the FBI is still going to do? Oh, we can't. Sources and methods, critical information. They'll go to court. It'll take three years. Brandon won't even be president anymore. He'll be in the friggin' dementia home by then. And, and it won't matter even if they do. Did you learn nothing from the Twitter files? This is the lesson of the Twitter files colliding with the lesson of Kabuki Theater and the Congress clowns. 
The Twitter files look like their seventh or eighth dump now. Incredibly damning information. Quite a bit of it demonstrating clear federal felonies punishable by decades in prison. Nobody's been charged. Nobody ever will be charged. Nobody's going to prison. Nobody's going to do anything. If the orange man rises like the great pumpkin and takes over in 24, nothing will happen. Remember, lock her up. Lock her up. 15 minutes after she conceded the, 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 the presidential election and, and Clinton speaking, I mean, uh, Trump speaking of the Clintons, I don't want to hurt them. They're good people. It's all bullshit. Just accept it. Twitter files, same thing. All this stuff comes out. Nobody does anything. Zero real coverage, even Fox News. No real coverage of this stuff. This is damning information. It's on the COVIDs. It's on censorship. It's on colluding with government officials, colluding with private companies to commit censorship, shutting down people who are doctors and scientists. These are, again, I want to be clear. Many of the things that we found out are not just wrong or unethical. These are felonies. These are felonies. Nothing will be done. And these aren't felonies where you go, well, you know, you could interpret it this way or you could interpret it that way. And you could have a legitimate intellectual discussion. This is cut and dry. This is a felony. And here's the person that committed it. This is their name on the email requesting something to be done that they cannot do as a government official. Nothing will ever happen. Nothing is going to happen to Hunter. Hunter will not go to prison. Hunter will continue to sell high-priced art. It looks like he, he painted it with his ass. And he'll get away with it. The Bidens will never go to jail. The Clintons will never go to jail. Trump's never going to jail. None of these people are ever going to jail. Whether you think they, they should or not, you probably think some of them should. And none of them are going anywhere except to the bank with your money. Accept it. Accept it now. Because if you don't, then instead of like being able to listen to this like you are right now, thinking, yeah, he's right, and finding some amusement in it, you think you're going to change it. You can only change one thing. That is you, my friends, yourself. Your circles of control, to a lesser degree, your circle of influence, all the shit I'm talking about, it's out in your circle of concern. And what you'll find is the more time, you know, what what Stephen Covey taught was the more time you spend in your circle of control, the larger your circle of influence becomes. But I'm going to tell you something else that people really need to understand. I think it's even more important. I'll do respect to to, to Stephen Covey. May he he rest in peace. Um, The more time you spend on your circle of control, the smaller your circle of concern becomes. You stop worrying about this other shit. You realize it's all a gimmick. And when somebody puts it on in front of you, you just go, yeah, there it is again. So I find that interesting bringing the next thing up. And I sometimes I do a thing and it looks like it's just a random thing. But I always know why I'm doing the thing that I'm doing. And I generally have a pretty good feel of what's going to happen. So here's a poll, and I'll read it exactly for those that are not on the video, that I ran on Twitter last week. I said, what percentage of trust do you place in the U.S. government and mainstream media at this point? Pick the answer most close to how you feel, because I didn't have enough options on Twitter to really do it justice. I would have loved to have been like 0, 2 to 10, 11 to 20, like that, right? I would love to have been able to do that, maybe done some, you know, vote offs with the two or three top answers. But this worked. So I said zero percent, absolutely nothing. Twenty five percent, maybe a bit more or less. Fifty percent, maybe a bit more or less. I am an idiot. One hundred percent. Here's the result. Zero percent. Seventy eight point two percent of people truly thinking individuals. 
percent, 18.1% of people. So they trust the government about a, one quarter of a percent, 50%, a bit more or less, 1.8%. Okay. I'm an idiot. 100%, 1.8%. Now let's see. I don't, 441 votes. So that's not a ton of people that said they were an idiot, but it's, you know, it's almost double digits there. It's like eight or so. Uh, interesting, interesting that they were willing to, to say that, to say, and I, I, I really feel that most of the people that said 100% I'm an idiot, they did it because they, it was a unanimous vote and it was funny to them to say it that way. But the discussion is what I was after. The discussion I was after. And I had people say things like this and I'm not going to completely single this guy out because I've done this before and I get the same response from a, a segment of people every time I do it. Well, I think that if you 100% don't trust anything, if you say 0%, you're not thinking because just because somebody's untrustworthy doesn't mean they're always lying. Here is a very important distinction. And this is why I'm always big on talking about the meaning of words and the use of language and thinking. And it's why sometimes I throw little traps out like this to teach these lessons and to drag people into a point where they make something they're absolutely sure of and go, are you sure? And then they go, well, wait a minute. What does trust mean? What is the difference between trust and believe? Right? So let's say that I told you something that you had, you had no knowledge of. If I said there was a plant called blah, 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 right? Whatever the name of the plant was. And if you, if you were to eat that plant, and there actually is a plant that does this, by the way. I can't remember what it's called. Some people call it the miracle plant, but there's an actual name for the plant. If you eat this plant, just a little bit of it, I think it's the berry from the plant to be sure. You eat this plant, and if you were to cut a lemon like an orange, you know, and you were to eat the lemon, it won't taste sour. It will taste sweet, and it will last for about an hour after you eat the berries from this plant. And you believed me and you didn't know anything about that. And you said, Jack is a trusted source. This sounds a bit crazy, but he's giving me information I didn't have. And I don't feel the need to go make sure he's telling me the truth. Or, you know, maybe I'll even check on that, but I, it's probably true. And if it isn't, it's probably the case that he misunderstood. That's trust. If I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, I looked outside of my window. And the sky is blue. And you said, well, it's blue. Okay. Did you trust me or did you believe me? See, liars always use the truth to sell a lie. It's a game as old as time, folks. Using the truth to sell a lie is, is, the, is the way conmen have operated since the first conmen arose. You tell Three truths and one lie and three more truths and another lie or three more truths and the same lie. And you keep going back to the same lie and you sandwich it in truth. Now, now I, I'm not saying that every word that comes out, and I've said this before, right? Not every word that comes out of their mouth, not everything that comes out in a bulletin, not every piece of information published by CNN is a lie. But I trust none of it. It's either true and obvious a lie and obvious, or in the realm of all check, there is never a case that my government or the mainstream media or modern medicine or any of these clowns can ever come out and give me information again that I don't already know and have me simply trusted. I think that's a good thing that we're getting to a point where like almost 80% of the people in my audience anyway 
have switched on to that fact. There's also bad news in it, depending on how you look at this. This is what happens whenever a nation or a society or a current system of governance collapses. When trust is obliterated, it's usually the end of the cycle. Now, sometimes it is a reboot and a reformulation of the same old, same old that creates it. And sometimes it's complete and total eradication, you know, like doesn't exist anymore. Like the collapse of the Roman Empire, which took way longer than I think most people who, uh, who like to use an example realize. It can take hundreds of years for something that's in motion and never stops to actually play out in the timeline of history. But it, it usually foretells the end of, of a, a society, a system, or a culture when all faith is lost. I, rec- I, I recommended last week that you guys read the book 1491. As I've been reading that, I've been seeing that pattern here with Native Americans and the dissolution of entire societies before any Europeans got here. And it usually came back to faith was lost in the leadership. And when there was no trust in the leadership anymore, societies fell apart. So ambition reached a certain level. People got, you know, quote unquote, too big for their britches, went out and expanded their empire beyond what could readily be controlled. And as the empire started to have problems, instead of saying, shit, we should fix the problems, the people in power sought rather to hold on to the control. It was more important that I maintain control than fix the structural problems, even though many times the structural problems were fixable. Hmm. This is true of like the Mexia and the Aztec societies. Um I'm sorry, the Maya and the Mexia are, are two that I'm thinking of in particular that disappeared before we, well, Mexia didn't really disappear, but it was on its way into oblivion before any Europeans got here. And um, the uh, Maya just kind of evaporated from history. And there's other huge tribes, huge settlements that evaporated, some on a smaller scale, like Poverty Point, Louisiana. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, basically a small city that lasted for a thousand years. No evidence of warfare, just went away. And when you start researching this, you find this to be the common theme. If there's any record at all, what really happened was the population lost faith and trust in the leadership. And when the leadership was confronted with that, instead of fixing the problem, they sought to maintain control. And then they began to fight with each other over control, which further pushed the people to have less trust, which eventually caused the destruction of a society. Watch CNN, Fox News, MSB, NBC anytime recently. Does that sound does that sound familiar to you? Tudor says the Mayans collapsed twice, if I remember correctly. Sort of. I won't get into that. I'm not going to go Professor Jack with you today, but it's more entities within the Mayan population collapsed. And so if this giant, because we think of the, see, we think so homogeneously, right? We think that like the United States, that's what it means the Maya was like. No, there were factions and city states and areas of control, and they might all overridingly all be Maya or Inca. Right. But if this one collapses, that doesn't mean the whole thing collapsed. So anyway, the Inca is another classic example of that. Same thing really is what destroyed the Inca. They got to a certain size. They started fighting within the fiefdoms against each other. Everybody started claiming they were in power. Now, they did have interactions with us, but they had their problems long before uh, specifically Spain uh, came into their world. It's, it's an interesting read, but it's the same thing. 
and it's it's that history doesn't always repeat, but it often rhymes. It rhymes so much, it sort of kind of repeats, doesn't it? What do you think? What's going on with the United States government right now? Is it actually trying to solve the problems of the people, or is it time trying to maintain control of the people? If I'm going to run that on Twitter as a poll layer today after the episode. If you don't follow me on Twitter, I am the Survival Pod C because uh, I wasn't thinking when I made up that Twitter handle 14 years ago or whatever it was. But you can follow me on Twitter. I'll run that poll. Uh, what do you think the primary motive of government in the United States right now is? Option A, to maintain power and control. Option B, to fix the problems in America. You tell me. Same thing all over again. Uh, next up, real estate. Ah, more problems. This is interesting to me. And it's interesting to me because I just don't see it happening anytime soon. Uh, the primary reason being given by Freddie Mac, who does you know the majority of mortgages in America one way or another, Freddie Mac touches, mortgage rates inch up. Homeowners are waiting for rates to decrease more significantly, Freddie Mac says. Now, what have I taught you about headlines? There's always some bullshit and misinformation, uh, fanordism, when you read any headline that ends comma, blah, 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 says. Experts say, Freddie Mac says. Government officials declare, right? It's, you know, Fauci says. It's always some bullshit in there. But this is actually one of those situations where I don't have to trust MSN who put the article out. I don't have to trust Freddie Mac. I can look at what's going on and say this actually does work. Again, it's not that I trust, it's that I believe. And there is quite a bit of effort being put into, in this case, or I'm sorry, there is some hesitancy in buyers, and this is how they're thinking. And again, I've talked about this before. Well, I always remember mortgage rates being like 3 or 4%. Of course, they'll go down, so I'll just wait to buy a new house. And that's because so many people that are in the in the buyer's market, in the, the key demographic of people that buy houses. So you have two primary groups that buy houses. You have older people who want more than they have or they want less than they have. Either they're kind of coming up in the world and they just want more or they're kind of like they're old, their kids moved out, they have this huge house. And so they're buying to change their living arrangement from ownership of one home to another type of home. So that's one giant group. The other giant group, and what fuels the entire market, including the value equation on the other side, what is the house worth, are the people that buy what we would call entry-level homes, two to four bedrooms in the affordable bracket for the market that they're in, and they're primarily, at this point, millennials. Now, whenever I say that word, I always have to like remind people, like millennials are now like approaching 40. All right, they're not kids anymore. When I started this show, if I said millennial and you saw a 22, 23-year-old kid in your head, you were pretty close to kind of the center of the millennial generation. 14 years have gone by. A lot of millennials are on high blood pressure and statin medication, right? Shouldn't be what they are, to put that in perspective. They're people who have gotten far enough in their careers that they're ready to stop renting and build equity and ownership in real property. Right. First of all, Eric says first millennials are 41 to 43 now. I, I, I agree with that. I, I don't know that, but I trust Eric to have accurate information. It, it kind of vets out. So you're talking like young millennials are actually the primary first buyer demographic right now. 
going into Gen Z is coming into that world. And if you're under 40, it's very reasonable that you believe three-ish to three-and-a-half to 4% at the upside is a good rate for a mortgage. It's not a good rate. It's fantastic. It's historically not traditional. Like historically, rates are five-and-a-half to seven-and-a-half. That's kind of a median across the whole thing. But people grew up in this, and it's the same thing like when somebody buys some bullshit stock or something, and they go, well, it has to go back up. Well, the rates went up. Well, they have to go back down. Sooner or later, it is one of the few things that the Federal Reserve can influence by changing the interbank lending rate, and it's a tool they eventually rely on. But I don't see it happening anytime soon. Everybody was, the the Fed's going to pivot. The Fed's going to pivot. The Fed's going to pivot. And it started to sound like, remember the episode of Friends with the, the, the couch and Ross and Rachel and I think Chandler are trying to get the couch up the stairs, and Ross is going, pivot! Pivot! And finally, like, Chandler's like, shut up, shut up, shut up. It's like that. They're not going to do it. They have decided they want to create a recession that hasn't fully happened yet, so they can't pivot. So you're getting now where people are holding out, waiting for something to happen that ain't going to happen. And I really think that rates go higher before they come down. I want to remind you, Rates between 1978 and 1982 hit in the range of 18%. Now, a lot of you are, again, you're younger than me, and I was friggin' in grade school back then, right? And hey, like I was really paying attention to this, but I can tell you that, that, that the 70s were bad and the 80s started out lackluster and then got economically pretty good. But none of that period, let's say 1970 to 1985, was anything like, let's say, the Great Depression. And yet we had 18% mortgage interest rates. So I'm telling you, this isn't, this isn't something that has to correct itself. This isn't something that is required to correct itself. And it's, it's not something that probably will correct itself anytime soon. So we're, this is an interesting metric to pay attention to because what you can expect is more and more problems. Now, I spent the first 40 minutes of this episode, talking about all the shit that's going wrong, I gave you guys the blood and guts that you show up for, at least in a live stream. And my, my, when I put a title out like this, my downloads on the audio go up to uh, on a daily download. So I know you guys want this, but now I want to I do something crazy and talk about things you can do to benefit yourself. So let's start off with, I was thinking about this today, and I realized something. What I'm about to give you I did most of my childhood and throughout most of my life without ever putting it into an organized structure. In fact, I did more than I'm going to give you. And it's part of why I can sit here and I can switch from subject to subject to subject to subject and not sound like a dumbass. Even if you disagree with me, you're like, at least he's informed or at least he believes what he's saying. At least he has some knowledge. At least he's drawing from some information. He's not just pulling stuff out of his butt. And it's how to become a multi-subject expert in 10 minutes a day. And this would be what I would suggest that you do as a project this year. In fact, I'm making it a challenge to people. And it requires a little bit of discipline and a whole lot of initiative, but not very much work. Because when I say 10 minutes a day, I really mean that. What I want you to do is I want you to sit down and I want you to make a list of, let's see, to start out five, six things that you want to know more about. 
And I want you to look at that list and I want you to write next. I want you to put it in order. The one that you find most interesting and compelling because it's a good way to start a habit. Make that your first one, your second one, and so on. So let's say five. That'll take you quite a while. That'll take you uh, two and a half months if you do it the way I'm going to suggest. Then all I need you to do is every day, say first thing in the morning, when you get your 15-minute break, whatever, just create a time and schedule it like, oh, I don't know, showing up for a job or making being on time for a date. Like make it important. Give it priority for 10 minutes a day. Learn one thing you didn't know about the overriding thing every day and learn it deeply. And what I mean by deeply is be able to repeat it. Be able to put it to, 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 to explain it. Just one thing, one aspect. You know, if it was cooking, what is sauteing, right? Then maybe the next day, what is braising, right? Or what are the techniques in cooking? And then you have a list and then learn one a day. I don't care what it is. If you want to learn more about snakes, learn one species a day. How do I identify it? I don't care what it is. You do that for 14 consecutive days. And you don't take Saturday and Sunday off because it's only 10 freaking minutes. And we're going to try to build a habit here where you almost become compelled and you cannot prevent yourself from doing it anymore. When you get up, you probably have a routine. And at some point in that routine, you brush your teeth. You don't forget to brush your teeth because it's just a habit. When I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is make coffee. I don't have to say, hey, you know, it's time to make coffee. I just make coffee, right? Because it's what I do. It's Once you do something long enough, it becomes what you do. I want you to do that with this. And at the end of that 14-day period, go to the next item on the list and do this for the whole year. Every 14 days, pick a new subject, one new thing a day about it. This is why. One, it will become, it will become a habit. It will become a lifetime habit. You will get to a point where you are so compelled to do it that you can't not do it. Next, this does not take away all the rest of your learning. This is not the only, but this is a thing that you will consciously do every day until it becomes an unconscious action, a habit. Yeah? And if you do this, even if you learn 10, 20 other things that day, you'll have a certain ability to recall them, but the one thing, You'll recall it. If I ask you which hand your left hand is, show me, you're going to stick your left hand up. I know it looks wrong, but there's a reverse in the image, right? If I ask you, I don't know how old you are, you know. You don't have to think about it, right? There's things that we just know. When we take something and we make it as small as possible, we take a single bite of it, like eating the elephant one bite at a time, and we contemplate it. And I want you to do it as early in your day as is possible. Because what's going to happen is you're going to think about it and come back to it all day. You can even try and experiment. About 3 o'clock in the afternoon, say to yourself, I want to forget what I learned today and try to forget it. That's actually kind of an interesting self-neural programming thing that you can do. You try to forget a thing you really can't. And you'll, you'll, you'll build an incredible amount of recall to this information. Now, what that means is at the end of one year, There will be 24 things that you couldn't have discussed at a deep intellectual level that you can now do. Now, take that across a decade. And this is why you'll talk. There's people that have systemized this and probably other ways that they've systemized it. Right. 
And there's people that just do it naturally. There's people like me, like I have a freakish memory for anything that I'm interested in. I do this all day long, all the time. But it, what I call it is obsession learning. So some people, and I think we're the minority, we practice obsession learning. And we do it without any intent required. When I was a kid, I wanted to keep snakes in my house. My parents weren't about that. And I decided that by being able to make an intellectual case instead of, I want it, I want it, I want it. But if I could give them every single thing, every reason there's nothing to worry about, demonstrate my ability to be proficient, to handle it, to do it on my own, they would just wear out and say, okay, and it worked, right? So that set in my head like a dog, like a Pavlovian response, a pattern. When you want something, learn everything you can about it and then go for it and make it happen. So you would, what happens when you do that, you become very well versed, right? And you do so because as soon as you've acquired enough information about the obsession du jour, the uh, 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 obsession de la semaine, which is the obsession of the week or what have you, right? You, you move on to a new obsession. And so if you don't naturally think that way, then you give yourself a pattern that creates it, which is I have to learn 10 minutes that I have to spend learning one thing that I didn't know. And if you start finding this really great article, bookmark that sucker, but take that one fact and learn about the fact. So I found the fact, found something I didn't know about subject A in the first minute. Take nine, the other nine minutes investigating that fact. What does that fact mean? How do we know it's true? Where does it come from? What does it suggest? Have that discussion with yourself in your internal dialogue. Next day, a new one. Next day, a new one. Next day, a new one. If you find yourself completely compelled into a subject, move it into your larger learning and still get your new one for the next 14 days. By the way, in 10 years, that would be, what, 240 subjects that you would be able to discuss with somebody who honestly knows a lot more than you about the subject. Right. But they would be like, this is a well-informed individual. Now, here's the real power of this. You know, all the stuff we talked about, how I dissected it is how it's all meaningless. Do you know why? It's pattern recognition. Pattern recognition comes from prior information with which you can draw upon. Right. So and this is actually part of the trivium. The trivium, right? Grammar, rhetoric and logic. Right. So grammar is the ability to understand and communicate with the written word. Right. Rhetoric is the ability to understand and communicate with the spoken word. I don't know if anybody else uses that definition, but to me, that's a very easy way to think about it. Grammar is I can write, I can type, I can read, I can look up definitions. Right. That's grammar. Right. Because that's composition. It is with grammar. Right. Rhetoric is the ability to oritate, to be able to describe or to listen to someone else's rhetoric and consume it and absorb it. Logic. My definition of logic, again, which I don't know that anybody else has, is the ability to take that which you do know to form a reasonable opinion about something you do not know. You think, you believe. And when you get to a point where you do this regularly, you then start to listen to people talk. And it's not about writing them off or what have you. It's about realizing 
There's so little truth here, it doesn't qualify for my time, because we all live a very finite life. If you become one of the oldest people in the world and live to be 110, and you're functional and healthy beyond what is expected till you're 109, and only your last year do you really go into decline, it's still that in history. It's still every second's precious, and most of us ain't going to see that, right? So if I spend my time sucked into this type of thing, then I'm wasting the gift that is my dash. And so then you'll hear these things and you'll go, bullshit, bullshit. I had a guy I, today I communicated with in social media, and he said, if you are the person that just says somebody's a conspiracy theorist that's intellectually lazy, and it's just it's just like a mental defense mechanism and some other things. And I said, it depends. In many instances, yes. As in, here's a plausible thing. And then you just like, and, it, and it's a plausible thing and it matters. And you just say, oh, you're a tin hat conspiracy theorist, right? Well, then, yeah, you're, you're completely right. Well, what if it's a person trying to convince me the earth is flat? I know there's a flat part in the comments section. They're going to show up. I know it. Go ahead. Like, and you'll be a perfect teaching moment. Like the reason you write that person off or the people that run this world, man, they're actually and they mean it. They're not using a metaphor. They're lizard people, man, from the planet Xenu. And that's how they control everybody. Right. They live wasn't a metaphor, man. It's what's, OK. I don't have time for you. I don't have time for you. Well, so much of what our government and the media and all these various groups vying for your attention are saying is that ridiculous. And the more productive you are, you will have to be the less you pay attention to those things. And sometimes they're, again, they're good for awareness. Like here comes a storm, but you can't stop the storm. Either take shelter or realize the storm's not that bad. Or move. Those are, those are your, uh, <laughs> yeah, here Cletus says, the earth is hollow, not flat. The lizards live in the core. I think he's being funny, so it's funny. If I thought he was being serious, I'd probably just get rid of him. I don't have, well, you're censoring. No, I don't have time for your bullshit, right? I, we live in a simulation, right? And I think he's making a joke, too, based on who I know. Flat earth. I thought the earth was shaped like a donut. No, that's the universe. The universe is shaped like a donut. Homer Simpson explained that to uh, Stephen Hawking one time. You should look it up. It's pretty cool. Anyway, I'm not kidding about that either. Moving on, like that that's where I think we can get to as a society. And I think I can do more damage to people in power if I can inspire a few hundred thousand people over time, whether it's direct or indirect, to become multi-subject experts than I ever could with the political process. The, the, the one thing they do not want, they do not want is an informed population. Informed populations are almost impossible to govern. They really are. They really are. Moving on. Um, I want to give you a carnivore slash keto update. And this one is actually a full on carnivore update from a guy named Chris. And I've gotten plenty of uh, similar reports, but here's where we're at now. Keto update from Chris in Minnesota. No clue what day it is anymore, but I'm past my 90 days. I'm now down to 197 pounds from 221 when I started. This is the life. Seven to 12 more pounds to get to my final goal weight. Just signed up for an endurance race. One of uh, endurance races, one of which will be a 100-mile bike race in Kansas. Getting my labs drawn tonight, so I decided to fast for 24 hours prior to my labs. 
so far way easy. I keep pu keep pushing this 90-day challenge. Now is the time with all the New Year's resolutions. Comfort is the death of future you and future you are is counting on you and future you are counting on you uh, from Tyler Pierce said that Chris of Minnesota. If you want these kind of results, then then stop thinking that I'm making it up when I tell you it works. Stop stop believing that man fruits and vegetables and whole grains must be good just because it's what you've always been told. You know, maybe your your first uh, uh, subject is how why does keto work, right? Something like that in in the last segment. Why why does keto work? But what I wanted to give you, if you're ready to do it, is some tips that will help you do it easier. And I'm going to focus this on carnivore, which is full-on carnivore. It either came from something with a face or was produced by something with a face from something that was in that thing. So the one exception would be then, well, honey, something with a face produced it. Yeah, but it's puked up uh, nectar. That's what honey is. And I don't hate honey. Just It's not a key component to your diet and calories or you're eating pure sugar. I'm sorry. If I drank something and vomited it into a cup, it didn't come for me. It's still the thing that it originally was with some of my uh, stomach acid added to it or what have you. But otherwise, that's what carnivore is. Eggs, you know, cheese, because they came from a cow or a chicken or any part of the cow or the chicken or the fish or the oyster would be pure carnivore. Then there's something called ketovore. And ketovore doesn't have a really strong definition in my understanding. But I think the way most people agree on, on what would make something a ketovore diet is you really don't have to track your carbohydrates at all. You're just not going to eat enough of it. So it would be things like, like Ken Berry once famously said on my show, when we were talking about the net carb thing, and he was like, it's all bullshit. And I'm like, no, it depends. And when I explained my position, he said, yeah, you can trust broccoli. Right. That was that was the way he surmised the whole thing. You can trust broccoli, but if it's net carbs on a low carb tortilla, you can't trust that. I completely agree. So we're talking about low carbohydrate nuts and vegetables and fruits like berries in small quantities and then otherwise you're carnivore. And that's where I'm coming at from this. That's not the way you have to do it. That's where I'm coming from. Number one. Use whole low carb veggies if you're not going to go carnivore. So to me, these again, these are things like broccoli and asparagus, a little bit of bell pepper, chili peppers and stuff like that. But cook them and what's left behind after you cook your steak. This makes life so easy. So when I'm going to make steak, whether I'm going to just sear it in the pan after a sous vide or I'm going to cook it in a pan or what have you, what I do is I prep if I'm going to have any vegetables with it. Like tomorrow, we're going to have a skirt steak and asparagus with, with a hollandaise on the asparagus, which I'll also get to in a bit. Well, the hollandaise is made before I even think about this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get the asparagus ready to cook. If I want it whole, cut down spears, whatever it is, I'm going to have it all ready to go. I'm going to make my steak, and I'm probably going to finish my steak by throwing a big knob of butter in the pan, melting that butter down getting it to start brown a little bit, and I'm going to spoon it over my steak for a finish on the steak. And I'm going to cook my wife's longer because she wants hers almost well done, and I want mine, well, many of you wouldn't eat it the way I like mine. And so I'm going to get that done, 
And then no matter what I'm going to do with the asparagus once it's cooked, maybe I'm going to deglaze the pan a little bit. It all depends on the state of the pan. I'm going to throw the asparagus right in the pan. I only use one pan. I just don't put everything in the pan at the same time. And I'm going to cook all that flavor, bits of fat and everything into the asparagus. And then tomorrow what I'm going to do, I'm going to take the pieces of skirt steak and they're going to be resting while I do that, which means by the time I'm done with the asparagus, I'm just going to kill the heat, leave the asparagus in the pan to stay warm. The, the steak's going to be ready. I'm going to slice the steak, put it on the plate, bring the asparagus to it. I'm going to put the hollandaise over the asparagus and boom, one for me and one for my wife. Very simple, way less than 30 minutes prep and cook time. If I'm sous vide it's a much longer time, but I'm not doing anything. I just drop the steaks into the sous vide I cook like that all the time. Somebody says, wrap it all in fat butter. One of my favorite things to cook with and coming to T-Spaz this week Wagyu beef towel. I found a great source of it on Amazon. Very affordable for what it is. It's luxurious, full-on, totally keto, and it's like a very natural product as well. Uh, so that's number one. Next, eggs are not just for, for breakfast. I want to give you a few uses for eggs beyond uh, fried eggs for breakfast or scrambled eggs for breakfast. Um, one, and this is, I eat this for breakfast, but I also often eat these for lunch. And that's chaffles, which I have a different tip here in a minute, but I've stopped seeing chaffles as a stand-in for waffles or bread. Chaffles are just delicious. But my favorite thing to do with when I make chaffles is now, like, embrace the chaffle. And so how do I make the chaffle better instead of trying to take it, take it, make it taste more like an Eggo waffle, which I never ate in the first place, okay? I never – why would I try to recreate something I'm not even missing because I never even ate? But, like, so what I did this weekend, I just diced up a shitload of jalapenos, no seeds, and the pith out, so it wasn't too spicy, and a shitload of pre-cooked bacon so that it didn't have to fully cook. And I made bacon and jalapeno chaffles. And I also always add to my – here's my basic chaffle recipe, a half cup of cheese. And I like a blend of cheese for this. It just seems to work better, like a four-cheese Mexican blend. Half a cup of that, one big-ass duck egg, about a half a tablespoon of baking powder, a tablespoon of almond flour. And I'm not trying to make it more bread-like. It just comes out crispier and better if you do that. And I threw in, I don't know how much, a big handful of little diced jalapenos and like ribbon sliced bacon and mixed that up. It was free. My wife, who's not exactly key on key on chocolate, was like, this is freaking amazing. I could eat this a couple times a week. This morning, I made it for myself, and I did green onion out of my hydro system and cubed up ham. And it was spent, the rest of the recipe is the same. So start seeing the chaffle, which is in for uh, shorthand for like a waffle, uh, uh, an egg waffle uh, with no bread or anything in it. Start seeing it more as its own thing. And then you can use it like as buns for a burger because maybe you kind of throw some, oh, I don't know, onions and pickles in it. And you make and maybe you use pure cheddar when you do that and you make something to go with your burger. Right. But it doesn't have to be that. And kind of my real advice for those of you without a lot of time when it comes to chaffles, the batter lasts an easy week in the refrigerator. If you're going to eat two, three, whatever number of days a week. And by the way, with the recipe I gave you will make you about three chaffles. By adding the other stuff, you'll stretch it to where you'll get instead of like two and a tiny one, you'll get like three full size ones for how many you're going to eat that week. Don't put all the extras in it. So maybe make enough for six chaffles or nine chaffles, whatever it is. Do the cheese, uh, the baking powder, the almond flour, 
and the eggs and mix it up and put it in a, a sealable container and throw it in the refrigerator. And in the morning when you're going to make them, if you're going to make them for, you know, on the way to work or whatever, because they're great portable food, just mix in the extra things when you make it. Also, if you guys like the better than bagels, everything but the bagel seasoning, it chaffles, a lot of people put it in the chaffle. No, 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 no. What makes the damn stuff so good, so good on a, a bagel is that it's on the top of the bagel and it bakes. You ever notice in everything bagel, when you cut it open, it's not full of the same stuff. It's just on the top. So what you do is you put your waffle maker down. You let it just begin to cook. Where it's cooked enough, it's starting to settle in. It's got the print in it, but it's still a little bit wet. You open it up. You sprinkle the everything with bagel, and then you close it so that the everything but bagel seasoning, all the sesame seeds and all get toasted on the top of the chaffle. Then you get more of a flavor hit from it, okay? So that's that's another thing that you can uh, – you could do. And K-Box says he still joneses for a simple pasta dish every now and then. You know what the best thing to do for that is? Stop trying to make fake pasta. Once in a while, have a cheat day. Eat one meal and one time and be done with it. But I'm going to tell you a danger to that here in just a second. Um, another thing. Eggs, again, not for breakfast only. A steak with an egg could be an amazing thing. Here's a quick procedure. Make your steak however you make it. Okay. Take your steak out of the pan and and set it to 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 to, uh, to go ahead and rest. So that because if you cut into a hot steak, you've sinned against the cow that gave its life for you to have a steak. You need to let it rest so that the juices will not pour out on high viscosity, and they'll have you know it has time to kind of settle down. Before you make the steak, make a compound blue cheese butter. So whatever amount of butter you have, you want about a quarter of that amount in blue cheese crumbles. You want to soften butter, just mix it up. That's it. That's a compound butter. That's how simple it is. As soon as the steak comes out while it's still nice and hot, put a big schmear of that blue cheese compound butter on top of the steak. You getting hungry yet, guys? Okay. While that's resting with that butter just melting onto it, browning, just make an egg in the same pan, right? Cook the egg to like over easy to over medium. My favorite way to do this is tilt the pan and spoon a little bit of the grease over the egg when it's almost done so that a little bit of white on the outside isn't runny. Runny yolk, good. Runny white, yeah. Set the egg on top of the steak with the compound blue cheese butter. Whole good Lord. And it's like this huge elevated thing, and now you're using eggs, which are just this great source of fat and nutrition. And if you have your own chickens or your own ducks, and, man, if you can do this with a freaking duck egg, it is so much better. There's a reason I love ducks so much. I mean, really, they just – the thickness of the yolk of a duck egg is amazing. So there's another thing you can do with eggs. Uh, make your own egg yolk mayo, right? And people are like, I don't like mayo. Make an aioli. What's an aioli? It's a flavored mayonnaise. But if you tell a person who says they don't like mayonnaise – that it's an aioli, they eat it, and they're like, oh, it's delicious. And one of the big things about the reason people don't like mayo, the only thing they've ever had is like Hellman's or some shit, or they think that Miracle Whip is mayonnaise. No wonder you hate mayo, right? They've never had fresh-made egg yolk-only mayo made with something like avocado oil, right? And then flavored like to a garlic lemon aioli, and then stirred into something. So use it as a component of a dish, not just a big slather on top of a dish, and you might find a whole new appreciation for it, and it's so easy to do. And um, 
The next thing with that is use it to thicken uh, pan sauces. So here's a real simple thing you can do. If you've made a nice pan sauce, but it's kind of thin and you'd like it to be thicker, you can use an egg yolk to thicken it. Here's the trick. You want to put the egg yolk into something and you want to mix the egg yolk up, basically whisk the egg yolk. Then take a little bit of the pan sauce and let the pan temperature come down and bring some of the sauce to the egg and mix it and bring a little bit more and mix it. This is called tempering the egg. And once you've done that to where you get a nice kind of slurry, mix it in like you would with like a roux that you're making a gravy with. And you'll get a wonderful, thick, silky emulsification from the egg yolk, which is what mayonnaise is and aiolis are, by the way. You're kind of making a warm aioli here with the pan sauce, like a brown butter or something. But if you just throw the egg yolk in there, you'll make scrambled eggs and it'll suck. So that one might take a little bit. Um, but like two sauces you can learn to make, and they're supposed to be really hard and they don't have to be. Um, a hollandaise, which I mentioned earlier, and a bernaise. All, all a bernaise is, is we swap out the acid. Instead of vinegar, we use lemon, and then we add some herbs, right? I'm sorry, instead of lemon, we use vinegar, and we add in some herbs when we go to a Bernays sauce. Both of those are great sauces. I can't get into it, but, again, a Bernays and a Hollandaise are really kind of just a warm mayo done in a special technique, and people that say they hate mayo, you put Hollandaise on something, and they will kill it. And you can't feel like you're being cheated when you're sitting down to like a steak with a Bernays sauce on top of it and an egg, by the way, uh, or a hollandaise on a steak or the hollandaise on uh, asparagus. Hollandaise and asparagus, they just love each other. So all of a sudden you're starting to use your eggs a lot more and you're getting all of that fantastic nutrition into your diet. Because one of the big problems that people have with keto and carnivore, believe it or not, is they don't eat enough fat. You know, they, we, we tend to eat leaner cuts of meat. Ribeyes are really great, but even they could use a little bit more fat to balance the macro. So when you're eating something like a filet or a sirloin or, or something like that, you're not getting anywhere near as much fat as you really need to. Uh, next, stop trying to replace the bread and the pasta and stuff like that. So like I said, chaffles earlier, let them be what they are. Like I stopped trying to figure out how do I make, I can't, how do I make pizza crust? When I got the keto, I don't know, because, like, giving up a lot of the other shit was no big thing, thing for me. But pizza? Guys, I love me some pizza. And I figured out if I just use some good quality cheese and a good quality, like, marinara sauce, like, Rouse is a very low carb, and you control how much you use. You don't dump the jar into it. Take, like, a small skillet, put that on the bottom, and then put all your toppings on and a little bit more sauce and, and, and cheese on the top and throw that sucker in the oven and eat it with a fork. Screw crust. And then I realized, like, instead of calling it skillet pizza, I don't know what it is. I don't care. It just tastes good. Starting, like, I, I brought to you guys a couple of weeks ago the uh, pork rinds that can substitute in for breadcrumbs. And I sold them that way because they sell it that way. But do you know what the point is? If you didn't care about your diet at all, and I said, I made onion rings, but I breaded them with pork rind crumbs instead of panko, you'd be like, I'm down, Right? From from little skinny guy that can eat whatever he wants to the great big fat hillbilly, everybody's down with with deep fried onion rings, right? It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be because it's keto. It's good and it's keto. We've been doing uh, like taking pork chops 
put them in a zip top bag that you're going to throw away after this, beating them with a, the, the flat side of a meat tenderizer hammer and patting them flat. And then take those, they go into an egg wash, a little bit of egg and whole cream. Then they go in a little bit of almond flour. Then they go into the pork pancro, panko, and then you pan fry that. Holy crap. And you don't have, like, I don't, I'm not trying to make the keto equivalent to a whatever. I'm just trying to cook great food. And as soon as you get there, everything gets easier. Uh, next, organ meats. People have such a hard time in our society with eating organ meats. They don't like organ meats. People like Ken Berry say, if you just keep eating it, then eventually you'll like it. I, I don't know, guys. I'm I'm not ever going to be a big fan of liver by itself. And I've had I've had liver that's decent, and I've had liver that's awful. But I've never had liver that I'm like, if I went to a restaurant and they offered this, I'd order it if there was any other choice. But you know what's fantastic? A little bit of liver in ground beef, sausages, etc. I tend to put 10% liver into our ground meat. And I do that by take, and it's roughly 10%, two ounces of liver. I cut into cubes. I put it in a Ziploc bag, and I throw it in the freezer. And Or, or I'll, I'll just I'll cube it up. I'm sorry, I cube it up. I throw it in the, the freezer I put it through the grinder and then I break it up with the little sample size, uh, snack pack size Ziploc bags into two ounce clumps. Whenever I take out a pound of ground pork or a ground beef, pound, uh, pound of ground beef, I take out one packet. So two, two. I let them defrost. I mix them together when I make burgers, sausages, whatever. And that puts that into the diet without any real effort and it enhances the flavor. You would think if you didn't like a thing and you added it to something, you wouldn't like it. But how many of you would really eat salt by the tablespoon? But you can't really see your food being great without salt because it's the most important seasoning we have. It, it's kind of like that. And then you get all the nutrition benefits of it. And um, bonus, I said five, give you six. Whenever you cook anything that yields a fat yield that will be a good fat, like you're not going to make a pan sauce or something, and it's going to be a good clean fat that can be saved, save it. I have jars in my refrigerator. Some, one says bacon. Guess what's in there? Bacon fat. One says chicken. Guess what's in there? Chicken fat. And one says beef. Guess what's in there? Beef fat. And so if I have steaks and they have a lot of excess fat on the outside, more than I even need to prepare that steak, I'll trim that fat, throw those in a Ziploc bag, and I'll wait until I have a significant amount of it, and then I make beef fat croutons. So I take that all out, let it defrost, Chop it up in little pieces, throw it in the pan, render it out. I take those aside, and then I'm going to make a salad. Maybe I take a little bit of that beef fat while it's still warm and, like, toss it on a salad and then put those croutons in that salad. And then I take the, the balance of that fat, strain it through a little strainer, into a jar. It says beef on it. Uh, chicken, we get chicken. If we're going to make chicken in some way without the skin on it, which we actually often do, don't worry, we don't discard it, I pull the chicken skin off, Okay. Put the chicken skin in a, in a bag until I get enough chicken skin to make it worth doing. Then I make crispy chicken skins to eat, and I reserve that fat into a jar that says you guessed the chicken. And in that way, I'm using, I'm supplying my own fats. And Joe says, so good. You're right. It is so good. Chicken skins, really simple. Throw them in the oven 350 degrees until they're crispy. That's all you got to Put some seasoning on them. I like salt, pepper, a little bit of chili powder, and paprika. 
That's kind of my go-to with that. And then you can do other things. A little bit of thyme is always nice on it, too, what have you. And just cook them until they're crispy. And they're one of the most – put them on a sheet pan, put down a layer of aluminum foil. You'll get a beautiful, clear chicken fat. That way it won't get all brown like it does in a pan if you fry them. It's easier. It's less work. But two pans in the oven at once, make a whole bunch of them. I make enough for me and my wife to eat for, like, a, a snack or a lunch. And then you just dump that fat through a strainer, a little colander, a little mini strainer, a little stainless steel one, into that jar, wad the foil up, throw it away. No cleanup, no nothing. Easy peasy. All right, next. I want to tell you real quick something that I think a lot of you know, but I want to drive home why it's important, even if you're not letting them do it to you. You might be doing it to yourself and not realize. Why do you think the food industry puts sugar in everything including things you probably wouldn't notice in direct flavor if they didn't do it. For instance, sausages like bratwurst. If you pick up any name brand bratwurst, and then you read the ingredients, one of them will either be sugar. That's if they hate you, but not completely. But most of it now will say what? High fructose corn syrup. Why do they do this? They're adding an ingredient that is wholly unnecessary to sell the product. It has an added expense, even if it's cheap. Why would they do it? And Gank L here says, because sugar is addictive. And that's partially what it is. It's partially what it is. The biochemistry behind it is you can find fat in nature. You can find fat and protein together in nature pretty much anywhere. You almost never in nature find sugar and fat together. Now, if you had a great big bison eating apples under an apple tree, you'd say they're, but they're not, they're two separate things. And you would have to physically harvest both and combine them. There's a very, and even if you're doing that, if you're living the way humans live for the majority of our existence, there's there's very few occurrences in nature where you can get a lot of sugar and a lot of um, fat together. And protein, sugar, and fat all together, very rare in nature, right? Very rare in nature. When it's most likely to happen is end of summer, mid-fall, as ever, like all the stuff ripening on the trees and stuff like that, and the game is plentiful. So over time, we biochemically developed a response. If I get sugar and fat together, baby, I need to eat. And if you took a person and you said, here's all the protein and fat sound sugar you can eat as much as you want. And they, you said, go to town. And they did. Or you said, here's all the carbohydrates you can eat. No fat. And you measured the amount of calories that they can consume. They can physically consume. They would be able to physically consume more with just the straight carbohydrate and sugar than the fat. But it would be a limit on either. When you put them together, they will eat more than either of them independently. It triggers a response. And we will keep eating. And we will keep coming back for more. And we will consume more proportion. So the reason they put sugar in food is because it ups the amount per portion a person is likely to consume, and therefore overall you sell more of it. Even if it doesn't taste sweet, it still hits that biochemical reaction. 
Why is this important for you if you're trying to change your diet and control your diet? You'll have people like Ken Berry saying there's a great deal of truth to it. You'll have those people say you can eat all you want. But the reason that you can is because even though you can't, you can. And what I mean by that is it's inherently self-limiting, especially if you practice another thing I'm going to give you in a bit. If you stick to natural foods, whole foods, you're only going to eat so much before you're like, man, I'm full. I I, I got to stop. And uh, you, you will. And but if you add even a little bit of sugar, but you, you will eat more than you would have otherwise. You eat more. So that is the biochemical trigger. And your mind doesn't know if you've used a non-caloric sweetener or not. So I do use things like erythritol and monk fruit, the Lakanto sugar substitute. I use that, especially in rubs, because what I'm looking for is that beautiful crust that you get sometimes with a rub. But when you eat that, it can up how much food you will eat in total. So that's that's just something to be aware of. But that's why they do it, because overall, if they put sugar in food, you'll consume more per serving and they'll sell more in total. And the ROI is there. So they will do things because they're nefarious bastards, but they don't do it to be a nefarious bastard. They don't care that they're doing something harmful as long as the profit goes up. And that's how these decisions are made. Um, next, if you're going to grow some of your own food this year and you're just getting started or you just don't have the space, you live in an apartment or you're going to put in a bigger garden at some point, but you want it like, what would I grow if I couldn't have a garden? If everything I grew had to be like in a small indoor hydro system, uh, a small aquatic uh, aquaponic system or pots and things like that. And you said you can only grow like five things. I might think longer and swap some things out, but here's five things that I would Definitely consider growing. I also be like, little shit. I don't have to do five. I can do ten. I'll show you. Um, but here'd be five. Number one, fresh basil. Fresh basil is one of the most amazing herbs that you can add to your food, especially if you're smart and you add the basil at the end. Always add fresh herbs at the end. If you're going to cook with herbs, you might as well use dry herbs if you have them. Now, if you don't have dry herbs and you have fresh herbs and that's what you have. And you have plenty and you want to cook with them and finish with them fine, but you'll get the biggest bang out of them by finishing. Even things like, let's say you're going to do a stew or a pot roast with parsley. Take the leaves off your parsley, chop it up, set them aside, cook your pot roast. If you want to do anything, chop the stems up and put that into your broth and let that flavor your broth and let that cook long term. Great flavor. And then at the end, add the fresh parsley. But I would, I would, I would absolutely Never go a year without growing basil. And it's one of those things that's really cheap and easy to buy, but it's often very hard to find fresh unless you're growing it yourself or know someone who does it. And it's really easy to grow indoors in hydro and aquaponic systems. Really simple. Um, green onion. Green onion is such a bang for the buck in flavor enhancement. And if we're going to live in a, with a diet that's mostly keto, we're not going to rely on vegetables. We're looking more for flavor and color and enhancement than we are for, for calories. And a green onion will grow back. You cut it. Don't pull it out. Just cut it, and it'll grow back, and you cut it, and it'll grow back. You usually get about 10 grows out of a green onion before it won't grow back. And eventually, I just let mine get huge. Okay? You'll like this. I let mine get so big they look like leeks. And then I cut them, and I throw them in a dehydrator. 
and I grind them up to make green onion powder out of them, and they're freaking so freaking delicious. But green onion chopped up on the bias especially, added at the end of just about anything is going to be good. Uh, I would always grow that. Next, parsley. Parsley is, to me, one of the greatest flavor enhancers we can have. It can be a little bit finicky to get to sprout when you're growing it in small quantities. Like if you have a garden, it's cool to just like throw parsley everywhere in your garden and let it grow where it wants to and let it go endemic on your property. Um, there is another tip, though. If you are doing aquaponics or hydroponics, especially an ebb and flow bed, that's where this works fantastic. When you go to the store, buy your organic carrots or whatever, or if you grow your own carrots, when you get your carrots, leave about an inch on the top of the carrot intact. Just cut the bottom of the carrot off, peel that, use it however you're going to want to. Cut the green back till it's only about an inch long. Stick that in an ebb and flow bed. And within days, it'll start sprouting new and use the carrot tops like parsley. They're freaking delicious. And it's the, it's the easy button to produce that kind of flavor. So either or or both. Uh, next would be thyme. Thyme is one of those herbs that fresh thyme is so freaking good. You know, I was talking about cooking steak earlier. Take a little bundle of, of thyme. So little thyme twigs with little florets on them and, and wrap it up with something. Tie it up. Throw it in your pan in that sauce. Kind of move it around while you're cooking that steak or chicken or whatever. And then when you spoon that over, you add garlic to it too, by the way. Garlic and thyme in that brown butter sauce or just the grease on the steak. It's so amazing. It's so amazing. You know when you lay your steak on a cutting board, you're letting it rest and you get that juice that comes out of it, Right. Take your take your steak, move it over before you serve it. Take the thyme that was in the pan and kind of mop it through that that grease that came off the steak and kind of hit it one more time on the top before you put it on the plate. Thyme, I would absolutely never go without growing thyme. It's one of the greatest things on, on the planet. And as far as like a salad green, my go-to is arugula. It has more flavor, in my opinion, than any of the lettuce. It's more versatile and I'll be blunt. If you can't grow arugula, you need to figure out how to grow arugula before you kill other plants. It's one of the easiest things to grow. It grows in warm weather and cold weather. It, it just fine until absolute full on heat. And even then, if you get like early morning sun, afternoon shade, you can grow it through most of your summer. It's easy to grow indoors. It grows fast. You can buy a shitload of seed for almost nothing. Save your own seed in it. Like if you grow a bunch of it in a year, you can have a jar full of seed. You just sprinkle it into your system. You can grow it in pots. And the reason I say it's so much more versatile than lettuce is if I have lettuce, I have lettuce. Now, you know what I've never done? And I know some people have done some things with grilling lettuce, and I've done some wilting of lettuce, like with, like, some warm fat or something. But in general, I've never taken, like, a big handful of lettuce, throw it in a pan, and sauteed it. I damn sure have done something like I'm going to make steak, hollandaise, or my gar creamy garlic onion sauce, right, Tonight with a side of um, cauliflower rice. And like right at the end, big handful of arugula, mixed it in and wilted it into the cauliflower rice or thrown it in soups and whatever. So I get a salad green. I get a sandwich type topping. I get a, it just, it, it's so beyond a lettuce. And if I had to put the like number six, it would be like a cheat and say two varieties of a romaine lettuce. Cause now I have the foundations of, of, a, of a side salad and I'm full on ketoborn. And even if you eat 
all kinds of other things. That would still be the core that I would recommend people grow. The one thing you need to keep in mind, folks, and I think a lot of people have a hard time accepting this. I don't care if we're comparing you to an organic farm, a beyond organic farm, a permaculture farm, a conventional farm. In the end, you will never be able to grow as efficiently as a farmer unless you are a farmer. Because farms of any real size are always have employees and they can grow at a scale large enough with routine consistent enough to hire people that are relatively low skilled so that they can produce large quantities for market. So you will ne- you will be able to grow more per square foot and higher quality, but you will never grow as efficiently. So it makes sense to put at least your initial efforts or your core efforts on things that are incredible flavor enhancers, that are dish elevators, right? I'd rather grow stuff like that than grow potato. I can buy the best produced potatoes in the world for cheap, and I cannot be as efficient as a potato farmer doing it. doesn't mean I wouldn't grow potatoes if I ate potatoes. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying this is where I would start, grow this core, and then you're actually using what you're producing consistently and constantly. There, there's not a week that goes by that I don't use basil, onion, parsley, thyme, and arugula. It's just something I always use. And it's also back to what I teach, right? So like even if I wasn't growing anything, I would still be using that stuff. That'd be something that I would go to the store and buy if I wasn't producing it for myself. That brings me to the end, guys. A minute and 28 in. I do have a few questions that I started. We'll go and hit those in a second. Before I do, though, I want to ask you a question. What's 2023 going to bring you? What are you going to bring to 2023? What are you going to get at it? Are you going to take my challenge I gave earlier today and become a subject matter expert on 20 to 24 things this year? Are you going to take 10 minutes of your day to learn one new thing about something you didn't know every day in one subject and do that for like two weeks and then switch to another one? Are you going to give, are you going to give yourself that gift of 10 minutes a day and see where it leads you and what kind of thinker and what it, See, this is the thing I want you to do that for. It's not just being able to have a well-versed conversation or whatever. It's what will that unlock in your mind? How many things are there that you want to do? How many times have I said something, stop saying you can't and ask how can I? How many times do you ask how can I, you don't really get an answer or a complete one? If you take this multifaceted approach to self-education, how many, how many places where you're stuck will it unstick? Will it unlock? Will you find a way to do a thing that you otherwise would not? Or think of a thing that the hell with figuring out how to do what you want to figure out you want something that you didn't even know you did. The more information you have, the better you can do for yourself. Will you take that? If you're not in the health that you should be, will you take the walk with so many of us down the road of keto or keto or carnivore? Do it for 90 days to see what happens. I've never had anybody really do it hardcore for 90 days and say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to quit doing that now. I, I made my 90. No, what happens is they, you do it, and the first couple of weeks for some people really sucks. It really sucks, but then it starts to unlock your potential. And by the time you get 90 days in, if you're – If you're not trying to make fake bread, if you're not going out and buying low-carb tortillas, I went that route. It doesn't work. It's bullshit. Go look up any any product you're thinking you can eat because it's supposedly net carbs or low-carb or whatever. Go look up on YouTube the product name, Glucose Test. And there's two or three great YouTubers that they all this shit – 
They subject their body to it. They do glucose testing. Very seldom does it work out. It's resistant potato starch. Yeah, well, here's my spike, 40 points of sugar. So it ain't that resistant. Are you going to take that challenge? Are you going to turn off the news and focus on what you can do? Are you going to focus on building your wealth, building your skills, building your knowledge, building your assets? Are you going to grow in the middle of what will be a recession? Or are you going to let it all run over you and think that you can vote your way out of economic depression? What's it going to bring you? And it's going to bring you, I know you're going to hate when I say this, and I'm going to put an exclusionary on it. Like somebody's going to get hit by a car or get cancer or something like that. But in the macro, in the, in the world that, that responds to what you do, you're going to get what you deserve. You're going to get what you deserve. There's, there's a song by Chris Kid, uh, uh, Kid Rock who some of his music I love and some like, I appreciate it, but I don't like it. Right. He said, people get what they deserve. I think a lot of people get what they don't deserve, too. But on the macro, a lot of what people get is exactly what they deserve. Let's see a few of the starred comments. Uh, Steve says, curious, anyone seeing trends on raw land prices coming down? They're still crazy high west of the Mississippi. I have seen raw land prices, and I'm definitely I'm well west of the Mississippi come down over the last two years significantly. They're still high but I've seen them come down and I've seen raw land drop while, uh, you know, typical conventional house lot real estate went up and I can tell you exactly why. And it's exactly why you're about to see the prices of conventional real estate come down. It's much easier to go get a loan with 3% down from Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, to buy a four bedroom, two bath house in suburbia than it is to go buy a piece of raw land. The, the financing terms are easier, et cetera. So generally there's a larger out of pocket going into a piece of raw land about the only way to get around that is to do a construction loan and go in and build a house and then refinance into a conventional mortgage. Sometimes you can actually do what amounts to a conventional mortgage straight in if you have all your ducks in a row and you qualify and you have everything set up. But in the end, that's really what it is, is it, it's harder to move raw land because your pool of buyers is lower. And so it will be a leading indicator of a decline in real estate prices. It always has been. Uh, so who did the cleaning state or local? I think K bonks talking about Joe Biden's 14 year old hide all the toys under the bed and in the closet before mom comes and say, you cleaned your room. Yes. State or local? Yes. Federal? Yes. Basically, yes. Whoever they could muster, they went out and they they didn't. Where'd they go? They just moved them. They, like, you can't stay here. A lot of it wasn't even clean. They didn't clean it up. They just went, you guys have to leave. Where do we go? I don't know. You can't stay here. But they, you can come back on, 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 on Tuesday. You come back Tuesday. Yeah, you come back Tuesday. You just got to go find something to do it yourself. Most of it, that that's how it was handled. Uh, let's see. 229 Mix says, do you have any tips for developing pattern recognition? I realize mine is very poor and needs to be developed. What I told you today about developing expertise by a 10-minute bite every day on a subject in two-week intervals. If you want, you can go a month and do 12 a year, or you can do a week and do 52 a year. Don't let my numbers constrain you. The more diversity of knowledge you have, the more you'll recognize pattern. 
It will become something that will happen slowly over time and you'll just see it. The other thing to do is whenever like you didn't recognize the pattern, but then the pattern was like there and then you realize it. Let's say you listen to somebody like on a podcast and they say, hey, did you see this? And you go, oh, shit, I didn't realize that. Then reverse engineer it. What was the end? What's the earliest indicator that this was a pattern? It's the way you train your mind to do anything through repetition and through challenge. See, your mind, Mick, your mind comes up when it sees a challenge that's worthy of its activity. And that's why it's so dangerous that we have put ourselves so deeply to sleep. Video games. Now, I'm not anti-video game. I'm just saying, like, nonstop video games, nonstop social media, nonstop television, Nonstop news, nonstop drugs, whatever it is for a person, nonstop drinking, nonstop partying, nonstop bullshit, whatever it is. What that does eventually, the mind just goes, fuck it, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. There's nothing here to challenge me, so I'm just going to, like, tune out, man. Your freaking brain becomes Spicoli from Fast Time is Ridgemont Time, right? Whoa, dude, wow. Right? That's just what happens. Because your brain is not being challenged. And when we challenge our brain, we unleash the computational power of, I don't care if you're a person that they say has an 80 IQ. Your brain is the most powerful computer for now in the known universe. And you probably don't have an 80 IQ. You're probably lazy. I don't think if there's somebody with a mental um, problem, right, a physical injury uh, or like a developmental issue or something where there's actually damage, I, I, I th- that's the case. Like you know, true mental retardation or something like that. Uh, oh, autism and autism. Autistic people are actually usually brilliant in some way, right? But I don't believe that anybody who's fully functional actually has an ADIQ. I think they have dumbed themselves down to the point where they perform like they have an ADIQ. I think one of the reasons that you'll see this debate about do certain ethnicities or specifically, do certain people from certain places have lower IQs? How important is the test to you will have a direct reflection on your score? I'll tell you, the same person, if I gave you an IQ test and said, ah, it's just for amusement purposes. There's some people who are super competitive. They're the Monica's from Friends, right? They're going to do their best 100%. But most people are going to be like, oh, okay, they're going to put that level of effort into it, right? And unless, they, like, inside somewhere it ticks a thing, like, this is a challenge and they like it, they're just going to perform okay. If I say, if you do really well, and I don't even define what really well is, I'm going to give you $1,000. Well, I'm going to give this test to 1,000 people, and the people, that, the top 20 people are going to get a 20%. So 200 out of 1,000 are going to get $1,000 each. If you think you have any chance of being in that top 200, you're going to get a better score than the first time. And if I say... I'm going to give you this test, and if your score is too low, Guido over here is going to pull your toes out, then he's going to shoot you and throw you in a hole. You're going to get an even better score because you're going to try harder. And I think a lot of times when we judge a population based on an IQ score, it's because how much effort are they willing to put into it in the first place? What does it matter? I think most people are actually way smarter than their test scores or IQ scores or any of that stuff would surmise. It's just have they unlocked the power of their brain or have they because of apathy or laziness or situation or what have you just decided it's not worth it? Or are there someone that's been convinced that they're going to underperform their home life so they don't try? 
because they were a fish judged on their ability to climb a tree. Right. I think that was a quote by Einstein. If we judged a fish based on its ability to climb a tree, it would live its entire life believing itself to be stupid. So because they were put into a certain box of things that they were expected to be able to do well, and they weren't able to do those things well, they never explored what they could do well. Next, and the last one before we go, Jack, I'm thinking about growing snake gourds this year. Would this work in keto? Okay. Full disclosure, I don't 100% know. Based on the, the item itself, though, I would, I would equate it to green beans in carbohydrate yield. There is, I cannot find nutritional data on snake bean or snake gourd. If you, Python snake bean is one of the, the things that it's called. If you grow it to maturity and you take the seed pulp, pop the seeds out and take the pulp, I'm going to say that's going to be very high in sugar. It's going to be somewhere akin to tomato, like halfway between tomatoes and tomato paste. Not quite as sweet as tomato paste, but sweeter than straight tomato. But if you're talking about the outside part, I'm going to say cucumber, green bean, it's going to be in that range. That's what I've always done with it. I grow it. I love it. I eat it. It is one of the best tasting vegetables I have ever had in my life. The only thing that that stuff needs is salt and a little bit of fat. And I've made it for people and they they just absolutely devour it. And it's it's interesting. It tastes more like it tastes like cucumber green bean mix, but it tastes more cucumber raw and it tastes more green bean cooked. And they're fantastic. So seed pulp's going to be uh, I would call it like a fruit. As far as sugar content, the outside, I would treat it like a green bean, a cucumber, anything like that. It would be fine. I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. I do want to remind you guys one of the ways you can help support this show and the work that we do is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Go there and you can help support us no matter what it is that you buy. The item of the day I have for you today is one I've been, I've been preaching this thing for a long time, and I mean a really long time, uh, years now, and I've never had anybody um, ever – uh, complain about this product. It's made by a company called company called Cable Matters. It's a six outlet wall mount surge protector. Now, full disclosure, I look at products like this and I say, if you get some surge protection out of it, good. If you want real surge protection, get a dedicated surge protector. My big reason for this is that I get more holes to plug stuff into in an outlet. The way this thing works, you take the screw out of the faceplate on your on your outlet. You plug this thing in, you put a screw in it, and it screws into the outlet. So when you're plugging and unplugging stuff, it doesn't pull the whole thing out of the wall. It takes about two seconds to install. That, that's exaggeration. It takes about 30 seconds to install one of these if you know how a screwdriver works. And you can't do it wrong. I'm sure a dumb enough person can figure out how to hurt themselves doing it. But if you have if you have that IQ of 55 we were talking about, you could install this, trust me. Now you go from two plugs to six plugs and two USB plugs, but there's a bigger thing at play here. We all have stuff that you plug in to one outlet, and it takes up the whole outlet. Like my wife has all these smell-good air freshener things. You plug one in, you lose both holes. So now she can plug that into a particular outlet, and I can still plug stuff into it. The other thing is the USB charger. So I use my cell phone a lot. I listen to podcasts and I listen to music. When I'm cooking, I like to listen to music. Maybe the battery's low. I got one of these in my kitchen. Boom, bam, done. 
One thing about it, the only negative that I saw in any of the reviews that wasn't by somebody that shouldn't be allowed to talk to people. The little thing at the top, you can see right here, is a power indicator light if you're looking at the picture of it. And when you plug it in and it says, hey, there's power in the satellite, it, it glows like a green color. It's pretty bright. It's not obnoxious, but it's kind of like a real dim nightlight. If you don't like a lot, of, I would not. I'm a pretty like I like it dark when I sleep. I would not put one of these in my bedroom, but just outside the bedroom. So when I walk out in the middle of the night to get a drink or something or take care of the dog and I'll bust my, my foot on them. It's actually a benefit. If you really had a problem with the light, you could just paint it with some black paint or something like that. That's about the only negative in this. Love this thing. And it's I brought it around today because it's on sale. Uh, it's 60 percent off. It's selling for like eight bucks and change right now. So totally worth it. Uh, I have I have two different of my outlets that I've put this in. If I ever build a new home, minimum every outlet's a quad box. But, you know, this house was built in 78. I haven't gone and redone all that. But I've got these in one other design. Uh, so I've got three total similar things to this. But this is my go-to one right here. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope that's a good little lifestyle hack right there. Not everything at T-Spaz is a survival item or even like a cooking item or something like that. Some just like lifestyle enhancement. To me, if I can make my life a little bit better for years by spending $8, that's a good investment. And I love these things. I think you will, too. And remember, no matter what you buy, if you start your shopping at tspaz.com, you will help us out no matter what it is. Also, quick reminder, I will be speaking next week, not this week, Next week, the 18th through the 22nd at the Greater Reset in Bastrop, Texas. I'll be joined there by John Bush, who's running the whole Greater Reset 4. But there will also be people there like Mark Moss will be there. Uh, Zuby will be there. That's a big win for John. J.P. Sears will be there and a ton of industry experts. We have like a day that's permaculture day, a day that's about like taking back your freedom and getting land. It's just all awesome. Check it out and learn more. You can find it all at the Survival Podcast or in the links in the video right down there below. Uh, the other thing is Paul Wheaton does still have his uh, his uh, homestead bundle available. I think it went up to 65 bucks. It's still a huge deal. Link for that down there as well. All of that helps support the show when you use my links. And last but not least, you should be stacking Bitcoin. If you're not doing it directly, at least doing it indirectly would be a way to go. Move your fiat spending from your credit card or debit card and spend it through the fold debit card. And they will give you Bitcoin in the in form of Satoshis. Every time you spend any of your money that you're going to spend anyway, you can start stacking Bitcoin with no out-of-pocket cost. Fold card is, is fiat done right. And if you don't use it, I literally think that you hate money. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Thanks for y'all being here. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way